If you have your Bibles with you, would you turn with me to Mark's Gospel, page 1, chapter 1, verse 1. If you're here in the room, uh, have your Bibles with you on your laps. If you're joining us online, you can call them up on your devices or on screen. Uh, This is the beginning not only of the gospel, but of the year for us. And we are going to spend the next few months looking through the gospel of Mark, understanding the life of Jesus. You know, the gospel of Mark is the first written account that we have of the life of Jesus. And Mark is a guy who just, he doesn't mince a lot of words. He leaps right into it. I mean, in the very first line, very first verse, he gives away the ending. He's not a mystery writer. This isn't about suspense. This is about truth. And so from the very top, he says, what's it about? This is the beginning of the gospel or the good news about Jesus. Who is Jesus? Again, he's going to tell us right in the first sentence, he is Christ, the Messiah, the Christ. And if you were here last week, you remember uh, Christ is not a name. It's not the last name of Jesus, Jesus Christ. It's a title, sort of like Sir Jesus, except that it means so much more than that. The Christ was the anointed one. Anointed what? Anointed king. To be Christ is to be king. And Mark makes it really clear that the king has come. And just in case there was any doubt, very next phrase, what does that mean? What kind of king? Who is this? The son of God. Let's read it together, the first eight verses of Mark's gospel. The beginning of the gospel or the good news about Jesus the Christ, the Messiah. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet that that we just heard from, those beautiful verses that Tim read. From Isaiah the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. A voice, a voice of one calling in the wilderness. Prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight paths for him. Hold on to that thought. We're going to come back to that little bit of construction engineering. Make straight roads for him. And then we meet John the Baptist, verse 4. John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness. Underline wilderness in your Bibles. Appeared in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And the whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him. And confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. Get a little description of John. It says, John wore clothing made of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist. He ate locusts and wild honey. I guess that's the Mediterranean diet people think we should be on. And this was his message. After me. After me comes one more powerful than I, the thongs of whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. This is the word of God, and it is a bombshell. I mean, this, this comes with, with dynamite inside of it. If you weren't here with us last week, uh, let me encourage you to go back and spend a few minutes and log into YouTube and, and listen in on that message, because you need to understand exactly what Mark is getting at. Christ, 
son of God, that, that somehow the ideal has now become real for us, that what was only kind of theoretical and metaphysical, now it's physical, it's, it's right here, the immortal has become mortal in Jesus, and what was once only an idea was now something that you can actually get your arms around, you could, you could hug him. The impossible has been made possible in Jesus. And again, Mark is not a man to, to, to disappear into long, flowery bits of eloquence. He doesn't mince words. He leads with his climax that this is the universe-sundering, history-altering, worldview-shifting, cataclysmic event that sets the message of Jesus off from every other philosophy or worldview or religion in the world and in history. And at stake is this key idea about God. Remember, Jesus is there to teach us something about God. God is so loving, so intent on the salvation of his people and of his world that he broke right through the wall that separated us, that he was incarnated. I mean, take on flesh, incarnated once uniquely in Jesus. And in Jesus, the king has come. The status quo has been completely overturned. Something new is happening. We spent most of last week on that idea that the, the king has come, that something, something radically new and fresh is inbreaking in the world. And today, we're, we're going to build on that. We, we, we just kind of ran out of time last week. We, we talked about the king's coming. I want to talk to you about the king's school and about the king's cross. And those three things together, the king's coming, the king's school, and the king's cross, are kind of the introduction to the gospel of Mark. And like any good introduction, they actually give the whole theme for the book. The entire first half of the gospel is really about understanding the king who has come, and what it means to be schooled by him. And the entire second half is about the king's cross. At the midway point at chapter 8, like, like a, a door swinging on a hinge, everything changes. And from there forward, fully one half of Mark's gospel is about the cross. In Mark's mind, there was no doubt that this was the key thing about the life, the work, and the ministry of Jesus, the king's cross. So we're going to end with that today, but let's first start with the, the king's school. And by school, I don't necessarily mean building, but, but, but when you disciple yourself to somebody, when, you, when you're being mentored by somebody, you're going to school under them. What is the king's school? What is it that Jesus is about? Well, it turns out you meet this king, his school is in the wilderness, the whole theme of the opening chapter of, of Mark seems to be, if you find what God is up to, chances are you find it in the wilderness. Was, where was John working? Way out in the wilderness. Where did Jesus go after the baptize, baptism? He went out into the wilderness. The word wilderness uh, probably is there in lots of your translations. I like the word myself because it's got the word wild in it. There, there's something wild about this. I like that sort of old English flavor to it, that where do you find Jesus? Well, he's out there and it's wild where he is. But the trouble with the word wilderness, at least for me, growing up in North America, is that for me, wilderness means a forest. I'm not sure whether that's the case for you. Karina and I got all bundled up yesterday morning and we went out into the wilderness, well, Rattray Marsh, anyway, walking through the, the forest. 
but wilderness, at least my imagination, just doesn't get across the idea that it's here in the Bible. Because for me, wilderness is teeming with life. I mean, the, the, the trees were filled with birds, cardinals even. We, we watched a coyote go bolting across our path. There's deer in there. You can live in a forest, right? You can hunt and you can fish and you can grow things. All you need is a little clearing and, and the sun comes through the leaves and you can plant stuff. A wilderness is alive. That's not what the Gospel of Mark is getting at. The word that he uses, eromos, is probably best translated, desert. Desert. In that sense, wilderness or desert is, is a place that's lifeless. It's a place that, that only thorns grow. It's a place of thirst, and the wells are all dried up, and the ground is parched. It's desert. There's no bread out there because you can't grow wheat. It's a place of thorns and thirst and terrible loneliness because it can't support a community. Families can't live there. A town can't grow up there. A village, a city, it can't support life. So what's so important about John the Baptist preaching in the wilderness? I mean, interestingly, this is one of the great themes that runs all the way through the Bible. In general, you meet God best and most profoundly in the wilderness. In the whole history of Israel, Every time they met God in a significant way, it was in the wilderness. Where is it that Moses meets God in the burning bush? It's in the wilderness. Where does Jacob wrestle with God face to face? In the wilderness. Where does Israel meet God? Not in the great city of Egypt. In the wilderness, in the Sinai Desert. And it's there that they were were named the people of God. They were the people of God in principle. But after 40 years of wandering around in the desert, they were the people of God in practice. And here's why. Why is it the wilderness is the place that you meet God? Because you cannot stay alive there without him. And sometimes it's only when you reach the limit of your own resources that you realize our absolute dependency on God. So, The people of God are out there in the desert. All the wells go dry. They're ruined. But they pray, and water comes flowing forth from the rock. All the bread that they travel with goes moldy, and there's no way to grow more. And suddenly there's manna from heaven, God providing daily for the provision of his people. Out in the wilderness, Israel learned early on what we have to learn, that God is not just an add-on to our lives. Not like vitamin supplements, like whatever is good is good, and then we just sprinkle a little bit of Jesus on the top. Apart from the saving intervention of God, you have no hope, no enduring hope, that ultimately all the wells run dry, all the bread grows moldy. Okay, well, there's an encouraging message. Glad I came to church. I mean, what does that have to do with us? In our lives, you can check me on this, but in our lives, I think we meet God most profoundly in the wilderness. You know what that's like, the wilderness experiences of life? Some of you have been there. You may believe in God. You, you may believe in, in, in Christianity, the values of Christianity. Without realizing it, 
it turns out that the real hope of your life, the real well from which you draw water, the real bread, the real thing that keeps you alive, that, that sustaining hope, the thing that makes you feel like you're a worthwhile person, your real savior, it runs out. Or you find it's inadequate. It just cannot sustain the promises that it offers, whatever it is. C.S. Lewis wrote a classic quotation explaining what the wilderness experience is like. This is what he says, that most people, if they really learned how to look into their own hearts, would know that they do want And they want acutely. And they want something that can't be had in this world. There's all sorts of things in this world that it will offer you, but they never keep their promise, Lewis said. And the longings that arise in us when we first fall in love, for example, or first think about traveling to some foreign country, or first take up some subject that excites us, all of these are longings which no marriage, no travel, no amount of learning can ever really satisfy. Lewis says, I'm not speaking about what ordinarily would be called unsuccessful marriages or bad trips or so on. I'm talking even about the best possible ones. They're always something we grasp at in that first moment of longing that eventually fades away in the reality. The spouse might be a great spouse. The scenery might have been excellent. It might turn out to be a pretty good job. But in the end, what we're looking for has evaded us. What does it mean when the downsizing comes? The financial reversal. The spouse is is no longer present. What does it mean that the thing that you had attached your hopes to most deeply is taken from you? That's the wilderness. And here's where you find the king. When there's less of you, and there has to be more room for God. And it's not that you decide, I'm just going to be a little bit religious. It's something that happens in your life that shakes the very foundation. You realize, I'm going to live and die without God, and it's it's not my career, it's not my family, or my looks, or my friends, or my money. It's none of these things, a great husband or a great wife not great kids. None of these things ever are going to make me unassailably happy, unassailably, which means, is it ever something that you could lose? Of course it is. And here's the secret that we all know. You will lose it. You will lose all of those things. Every well will run dry. Every bread will go moldy. And when you realize that, and it occurs to you that without the direct intervention of God in my life, I am dead. When you experience that, then you know that you're in the wilderness. And then you're ready to meet the king. John the Baptist, when he did his ministry in the wilderness, makes it really clear. You notice what Mark said about him, that he was out there baptizing people. And and maybe we think, well, that's not a big deal. We baptize people here all the time. We're baptizing people at Easter, by the way. Come to that lunch next month. We would love to talk to you. But, But this was an enormous deal, an enormous deal. And you say, well, what? I mean, before John the Baptist, was there no baptizing? Let me explain. Before John the Baptist, there had always been what you might call 
washings, or they had lots of words for it, ablutions, effusions, immersions. By the way, baptism just means immersion. immersion. The Jews understood that when they're coming into the presence of God in worship, that a good healthy practice was to wash their hands as a way of saying, I need to clean myself up. I need to be cleansed before I come into the presence of the living God. It was worse for Gentiles, which, by the way, is probably 99% of us, non-Jewish people. If you wanted to go to worship God, not just your hands, your whole body, I mean, you had to either immerse yourself in water, immersion, or, or pour water all over yourself, ablution, because you were really unclean. I mean, we're a mess. We're just a mess. But the idea was that, that you did something to clean yourself up before you went into the presence of God. But get this, and I didn't realize this until I started really studying this passage. You always did it to yourself. Always. The Gentiles did self-immersion or self-ablution. The Jewish did did self-cleaning, self-cleansing. This is the first time that we know of in history where John the Baptist says, no, I have to baptize you, all of you, not just the Jews or the Gentiles. It doesn't matter your background, whether you're a Bible scholar or a sex trade worker. It doesn't matter whether you're Jew or Gentile. You're going to have to receive this sign of fitness to be in the presence of the king from the hand of someone else. I'm going to baptize you. But later on, and this is an important thing, Jesus is going to baptize you. I'm going to do it symbolically with water. He'll do it with the presence of God, the living spirit of God. But the point of the matter was this, you can't save yourself. You don't do it to yourself. You know what that means? I mean, let's let's just try and make it practical. There's always always at MCBC, at any church, a layer of people around who are searching. You are so welcome here. And if you're online and you just stumbled on us and you're searching, you're so welcome. One of the reasons why people are searching is because the well has run dry. Let me give you an example. Let's say you worked really hard, you got into all the right schools, you got a great job and you're doing well, you're well on your way, you're doing okay financially, you're making good money, you think, boy, life is going great. And then it happens, whatever it is, some sort of great reversal, an unpredicted illness, a disruption in your family, downsizing at work. And suddenly your future is uncertain and, and you're in real trouble. What happened? Maybe you thought the, the money, the job, these were just nice things. But now you come to see that, in fact, they were the main thing. And now that they're gone, it feels like the very foundation of your life has crumbled. And the fallout is everywhere. Emotional collapse. You can't relate to people. You're having trouble following through on commitments. You're having trouble liking yourself. You're having some really dark thoughts. And then it occurs to you, well, maybe I've never been that much of a religious person. But in some ways, you probably were. Because you believed in salvation. You were just looking for it in the wrong place. Thought the, that maybe it was the knowledge that made you so savvy. You're so smart. Or, or the money that padded your account. You're doing really well. But now it's taken away, and you're going through this major identity meltdown. Who am I? Because this was the well of your life. This was the water. This was the nourishment of your life. And you realize, I'm empty. What's left? I need something. 
So you start to go to church. And again, we're so glad that you are. You start coming to MCBC or some other church. You start to read your Bible. You think, this is what I need. This is absolutely what I need. But then you do what we do. We try and engage life on our own terms. So we start negotiating with God. After, making, after all, making deals is what we're good at, right? So uh, I'm going to be really good, God. I'm not going to lie on my income tax anymore or do some of the other nasty things, stepping on people in order to get ahead. I'm, I'm going to clean myself up. And somewhere in the wilderness, John the Baptist is still saying, you're still trying to save yourself. Maybe you're getting more religious, but you're still trying to baptize yourself. You haven't really changed the foundation. Let me give you another little example of what that might look like when you really meet the king in the wilderness moments of life. man's name was Nathan Cole. It's a true story. Nathan Cole was a Connecticut farmer. He kept a diary in the 1740s. This particular diary is, is somewhat famous. Historians love to read it because it's filled with so many anecdotes about what life and society and culture was like in the 18th century. Cole became a Christian. He was listening to a sermon by George Whitfield, one of the great preachers used by God in the New England revivals. And so outdoors in Connecticut at a service in 1740, I've never forgotten the words that he used to describe his account. I'm paraphrasing a little bit, but this is what he said. My hearing him preach gave me a heart wound. A heart wound. And by God's grace, the old foundation of my life was broken up. And I saw that my own righteousness could not save me. You see, he was in the wilderness. He saw his foundation and he saw it crumble and he met the king. That's how it happens. That's, that's where it happens. That's the school of the king. There's one more, one more thing I just wanted to spend a moment on with you. We really are just going to spend a few minutes uh, because Mark devotes the entire second half of the gospel to it. We're going to get to spend lots of time, but... But the king has come. You meet him in the wilderness. What's it all about? What is the trajectory of this story? Where is the king going? I mean, let's be honest. In the West, I think for the most part, king is not a word that we use. I mean, we use it symbolically about the royalty in England, but but the idea of living under a reigning monarch, under that kind of autocracy, that just doesn't sound right to us. It sounds a little bit oppressive. In fact, if you, if you look at songwriting in the church, you'll find that most of our songs, uh, they're in praise to Jesus as a friend. We want to love him as a lover. But the language of king, that sounds just a little bit oppressive. Remember I said we're going to come back to that little bit of road engineering and construction? Here we are. Have a look with me at Mark chapter 1, verse 3. This is, uh, this is a quote. I mean, he's quoting the Old Testament. He's quoting the prophet Isaiah. And this is the quote. Prepare the way for the king. The king is coming. How do you do that? Make straight roads for him. Or maybe you've heard the old language, make a highway in the desert for the coming of our God. The word 
it's not really paths, it's, it's roads or highways. And, and ancient people who heard those words, right away they would know what's going on. Whenever a new king comes to power and they're coming to visit in a country, you built a highway to honor that king. Look how many roads on ancient maps are still labeled the king's highway. Those are the big roads. Those are the major arteries of civilization. And so when a king comes to power and you have to construct a road, that involves a huge amount of effort. Ordinarily, what you created literally were just paths. And you came to a big rock and the path just winds around it. You come to a hill and a valley and you zigzag down into the valley and you zigzag back up the other side. And that's how you did that. But not the king's road. If you're building the king's road, you need to dig down into those rock formations and go straight through. You need to bridge those chasms and fill in the canyons. And that meant tens of thousands of slaves and hundreds of thousands of slave hours. And so when the king came, it meant a burden on the slave population of the world. There's a whole lot of people who read that and think if Jesus is the king, that just sounds like more oppression. You're going to have to do what he says. I don't like that idea. Sounds like slavery to me. Even still today, that idea of yielding yourself, surrendering yourself to God, sounds like oppression. Mark deliberately surfaces this word, I think, at the very beginning of the gospel. Because here's what happens. Every other time in the gospel that Mark uses the word road, he's talking about the road to the cross. The two go together. You see, road, think cross. Road equals cross in Mark's gospel. What that means is that this king has not come to parade across some fancy slave-built highway on his way to the throne. This king comes to go to the cross. King's cross. King's cross. What does that mean to you? I mean, if you're British... That's a neighborhood in London, and I think it's the train station. If you're Australian, it's also a neighborhood and a train station. If you're North American, what does King's Cross mean? That's where Harry Potter goes to pick up the train to Hogwarts, right? Platform nine and and three quarters. And if you have no idea what I'm talking about, time to keep up with the evolving Western literary canon. I want you to just consider for a second how paradoxical that language is, King's Cross. Because this is the heart of the message of the Gospel of Mark, King's Cross. Kings go to thrones, not crosses. Matter of fact, a, a, a cross is exactly the opposite of a throne. A throne is a place of power. A cross is the epitome of powerlessness and helplessness. A person dying on a cross isn't isn't even allowed to die in private. They're hung out there bare naked for the whole world to see. It's the epitome of helplessness. It's the opposite of a throne. Mark here is saying at the very beginning that the kingliness, the greatness of Jesus the Christ is that rather than go to a throne on the backs of slaves who pave the way, he would go to a cross for the sake of a humanity that were desperately lost, the foundations whose lives were crumbling. Or to put it another way, to use Mark's wilderness language, Jesus goes to the ultimate wilderness, a howling wilderness. What was there in that wilderness? Thorns, 
thorns pressed down on his head, thirst, the last words of Jesus on the cross among them, I thirst, forsakenness, aloneness. Jesus goes to the ultimate wilderness so that when you and I are in those lesser wilderness moments in our life, we can find him there. And he took the, the punishment that, that life often doles out to us and that certainly, certainly if we're honest, there are moments in life when we deserve it. He took that and by grace he says, no, no, that will not be the last word on your life. And he opens up the possibility of a relationship with God. What that means is that is the kingship of Jesus is the furthest thing imaginable from oppression. That he's not just a king, he's a servant king. That's something entirely different in the history of the world. His kingship brings salvation. It's not enslavement, it's, it's liberation. I think that's almost enough for today. But let me just ponder this as we close. If Jesus is not just a great human being, and Mark doesn't want to leave that possibility open for discussion, if not just a great human being, but if he is in fact Christ, Son of God, the King who has come, the Savior of the world, he's the King who goes not to a throne but to a cross, how do we respond? I mean, what do you make of all of that? First book I ever remember buying, Christian book, other than a Bible, was a little wee book called Basic Christianity. The writer was John Stott, a, a, a British, an Anglican, great writer. Uh, I don't think it's ever been out of print in more than 60 years. And Stott, he was very, very good on this point. He said that people who actually meet the real Jesus, the people who met him back then, the people who meet him today, they always respond in an extreme way. Because if you actually heard the real Jesus, if you actually come to know the real Jesus, if you really understood what he's saying and what he's doing, you either hate him and try to wipe him out, and lots of people did that, lots of people still do, or you are scared to death of him and you try and run away and lots of people are still running from God, or you knelt at his feet and you laid the sword of your life in front of him and said, lead me, and you give yourself in awe and adoration. Those, Stott said, are the only three rational responses. They're all extreme. The one thing nobody ever did was came to Jesus afterwards and said, hey, nice sermon, pastor. Very inspiring. It's not just inspiring. Uh, Jesus didn't come to inspire. The only rational response to the claim that Mark is making about Jesus is extreme. Are you rational? Yeah, but I don't want to be an extremist. My goodness. Being intensely like Jesus is not going to make you a radical. It will make you intensely gentle, intensely committed to truth, intensely humble, intensely loving. You're not going to look like a crazy person. You're going to look like the kind of person that puts the world on notice. That's what life is supposed to be. You'd be an extremist for Jesus because you've accepted him as, as Lord and Redeemer in the wilderness and at the cross as both Savior and and king. Let's do that now. Let's pray together. Our God, your servant Mark, he, 
He's been used so mightily by you to archive and present the details of the life and the work of Jesus. And we hear him calling to us now, not, not Mark, but the one to whom Mark points. We hear Jesus calling and inviting. And, and for some here, God, they, they want to respond to that call and it feels extreme. And so we want to respond extremely. And with some for the very first time, we want to say, Lord, I understand at last. I'm all in. I'm all in, and I, and I realize that this act of surrender, God, this isn't oppression, this is freedom. In freedom, I place my life in your hands, knowing that the best of everything that you have for me now and in your eternal future comes in the name of Jesus. And for some God who are here, we may have made that commitment long ago, but, but the luster is gone. Somewhere along the line, the line we, we lost our first love. But God, we know that you can restore it in us, and we pray that it would come today. Baptize us through the presence of your Holy Spirit. Surround us, pervade us. God, be beneath us and within us. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.